This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. We're examining the politics of anxiety, a topic many of us can relate to. I'm with Dr. Jodie Lowinger, a doctor of clinical psychology and university medalist who has decades of experience in management consulting, executive coaching, and business. She helps others optimize performance, resilience, mental health, and a winning mindset. As the CEO and founder of MindStrength, Jodie empowers leaders and teams with her expert strategies and also helps combat performance-blocking behaviors. Jodie's worked with top end of town, including Macquarie Bank, PwC and Harvard University, and has consulted to organisations including Lendlease and American Express. Jodie is also the founder of the Sydney Anxiety Clinic, a leading anxiety treatment clinic for adults, children and teens. She also advises on mental health and resilience in schools and frequently presents on cyber safety, managing bullying, reducing anxiety, boosting resilience and building a growth mindset. She's a popular speaker and media commentator and also the ambassador for Street Work, a national charity to mentor troubled teens and turn their lives around. Welcome to the podcast, Jodie. It's lovely to be here, Amber. So what was your childhood dream and did you get there? My childhood dream was actually to be in advertising. I wanted to be a creative director and I ended up doing some work experience. Uh, I think it was George Patterson Advertising at the time. And uh, I, I loved art. I uh, was in Art Express. I, my major work was actually a series of emotions in childhood. So, but my love for art didn't quite translate to um, <laughs> being in the advertising world, but it did translate to being in the field of psychology. When I, I did a Bachelor of Design and when I was doing that, I actually found that I was helping my colleagues and my lecturers with their anxiety at the time. So it's quite ironic. So the world's collided somehow, the creativity obviously, as well as the, the anxiety and the interest in mental health. Yeah. And I think it's sort of that that sort of deep kind of passionate drive that takes you towards creativity and that analytical mind. There's a lot of uh, similarities in that space. Yeah. So what was your first job and how did that shape you? My first job was tutoring the daughter of one of the most successful entrepreneurs in Australian history. <laughs> and it actually was a really fabulous life experience. I ended up learning a lot from the family. They almost took me in as a sort of a surrogate member of the family and uh, learned a lot about being an entrepreneur and establishing business and establishing my own little business at the time. I was really young at the time. It was a great experience. So what is anxiety and how do most people get diagnosed with the condition? So anxiety is one of these fascinating things because it's actually not the enemy. Anxiety is actually a really important friend. It's a physiological reaction to threat. So it's an incredibly important aspect of 
our physiology as, as human beings and it's the fight or flight reaction that gets triggered in the case of threat to help us to fight the situation to defend ourselves or to run away if we need to. And so what it really is, is a rush of adrenaline and cortisol through our bloodstream, setting up our body, tensing up our muscles, doing all sorts of different things to get us primed to be able to look after ourselves. The problem in contemporary society is that this mechanism gets triggered in reaction to our perception of threat, not just in reaction to real threat. And when I talk about perception of threat, what I'm referring to typically is a worry thought that says, what if something bad happens? Or what if I'm not good enough? Or what if they judge me? Or what if that dog's going to bite me and kill me? So that's sort of offshoots of that perception of threat. It's diagnosed, it becomes a diagnosable problem when it's causing fear and suffering and avoidance in a person's life. So it's getting in the way of their capacity to function as they would otherwise want to do. So what are the most common ways to treat or manage anxiety and has that changed over time? Yeah, it's certainly changed over time. Uh, A while back, we had psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which looked at some of our early childhood experiences and the contributors that some of early life beliefs um, or patterns of behavior might contribute to uh, how we engage as adults or subsequent stages in our life. Then that moved to the cognitive behavioral therapies. Cognitive being looking at our thoughts and behavioral, of course, looking at our behaviors. There is now a third wave of therapies, which is uh, similar in many respects to the cognitive behavioral therapies, but incorporating mindfulness and values-based strategies. So an example of that is acceptance and commitment therapy. As far as the way that I practice as a therapist, as a both a um, clinical psychologist and a coach, a corporate coach, is I'm a, I'm a hybrid kind of individual. Uh, I I like to take the good stuff from all of them, and I. I I like to think that there's no one size fits all. Everybody is different. And so the way I engage with everybody is really based on their own individual needs. Absolutely. So I know that Beyond Blue states that in any one year, around 1 million Australian adults have depression and over 2 million have anxiety. And obviously they're the numbers that we know, but there might be hidden, um, I guess, numbers within that as well. Do you think Australians are more anxious than in previous generations or we're just better at recognising it and doing something about it? Yeah, I, I would say it's probably a combination of both. We are certainly better at recognising it. Thank goodness in uh, in the society that we live in, there's uh, attempts to raise awareness. That is, I feel like I'm on a personal personal mission in that space and my desire to break down stigma and help people recognize the signs and help people also to recognize that in that space there are many practical and effective strategies to help people to deal with these sorts of problems Um, but there is still extensive stigma associated with mental health um, challenges and so there's more to be done in the space of raising awareness 
as far as are Australians just more anxious, we we can come back to looking at the society that we live in, our society of overstimulation, oftentimes or sometimes 24-7 stimulation. I mean with smartphones and devices and constant messaging, you know, I guess we're always on really, aren't we? Spot on. We're always on. So we, as you say, the mobile phone is a, is a classic thing. We've got it by our bed. We're checking our messages in the middle of the night. Um, I heard a fabulous speaker the other day who said um, it was Maggie Dent. She's, she's wonderful. She used the analogy of saying we wouldn't go and check our post box in the middle of the night, would we? <laughs> so I, true. I thought that that was brilliant. So I'm thank you, Maggie, for that one. Um, yes, but it's exactly right. So there's this endemic fear of missing out. We're constantly engaged. And there's also this sense of compare and despair. So through social media, through the internet and the fabulous world of the internet, um, we have got at hand a massive amount of information and a massive capacity to uh, compare ourselves and find people who are better than us and more you know, putting that, we, we put our best face Absolutely. forward. It's a very sanitized version of reality. I it mean, is. It's a very airbrushed version of reality. And now we, if we look at our biology, we were designed to roam in fields. We were designed to run around in, in the grass, not just have a, um, you know, a, a green, um, wallpaper on our computer <laughs> you know we weren't designed to look at green on our screen we were designed to roam around in green so the fast-paced living and it actually starts this overstimulation starts from the from day one we give our children ipods ipads i know you know iphones <laughs> you make yourself feel very guilty here <laughs> and yeah and we feel that we're not good enough unless we're doing this unless they're, they're watching the stuff mm. on, on um, the technology. And then it's endemic in teenage years as well. Absolutely. So corporate life and business stresses are a key factor for many professionals. And I, I suppose I picture myself in my corporate career, anxiety was just part of everyday life. I sort of accepted it as a bit of a norm. But how can modern workplaces help their staff and their leaders in many ways set the example in what you must admit, must be a bit of a taboo area that re remains a little bit sort of on the fringes of workplace health and safety. There are organisations which, you know, they might focus on mental health aspects, but are they really walking the walk and talking the talk? I'm curious to know your experience of how workplaces can do this better and make it more acceptable. Yeah, it's a brilliant question. Our workplaces are moving beautifully in the right direction. If we look at best practice workplaces, they're embracing well-being and mental health as not a nice to have, but an absolute necessity, an absolute need to have. And it's not warm and fuzzy. You know, let's, let's put aside any warm and fuzzies to this. This is about a bottom line imperative. So organizations recognize that when we look at mental health, it's to boost productivity and performance. When people are experiencing anxiety, one of the default behaviours is avoidance, procrastination. This fear of not being good enough drives 
are aspects, behaviors that get in the way of getting the job done, of taking risks, of stretching our comfort zone and embracing peak performance. So the work that I do in business is all around strategies to embrace peak performance, resilience, mental health, and empowerment and getting the job done. So what we do in organizations when I'm working uh, to raise awareness around mental health, sometimes I do presentations uh, that simply talk around strategies to help with mental health. Sometimes I'm looking at preventative measures, which is really important, a whole lot of work around resilience. Um, and the, the, the fact is it reduces absenteeism, it reduces turnover, it reduces presenteeism, it uh, increases productivity and it mitigates an organization's risks. The other element that is really powerful in this space is holding on to high potentials. It's holding on to talent in a world where there's a lot of movement and certainly some of the up and coming and current younger generations, they move, they shop around and the best people will shop around. And so the people side of business and respecting that side of business is an incredibly important uh, differentiator for holding on to high potentials and your best talent. And soon enough, it's not going to be a differentiator. Soon enough, it's going to be the norm, which is a tremendous place to be. It's a huge leap forward from, say, a decade ago when I was in corporate and almost you just, you know, you almost feel bad to take a day off, let alone, you know, if you're having mental health issues, actually say to your manager or your boss, I'm struggling, I need help. And support. It was that idea that you were weak or that you perhaps couldn't cut it. So yeah. I think it, it's such a big step to even be talking about it in the corporate space. It really is. And best practice organisations are truly recognising that a command and control culture and a culture based on threat or, or punitive strategies simply doesn't work because it gets people in this um, hijacked by their amygdala kind of brain space. It takes them away from creativity and from productivity, which is emanating from their cortical, from their prefrontal cortex uh, in their brain. When we feel threatened, we get hijacked by our emotional brain and we engage in counterproductive processes, behaviours. Absolutely. So do you think anxiety is as much about your brain's chemical makeup as well as your own reaction to the external stresses such as, you know, I'm not achieving family work balance or money issues or even having enough time to do all the things I need to do like exercise? How much of it is who we are and how much of it is how we respond to what, what's happening to us? Yeah, it's, it's really a multifactorial kind of uh, thing, anxiety. I do in, in my clinical practice at the Sydney Anxiety Clinic, I see a lot of um, family predisposition to anxiety. So the biological basis to anxiety is uh, quite, quite uh, obvious in a large number of the people who I work with. Uh, in the clinical space. There are certain uh, clinical diagnoses, particularly things like OCD and um, uh, other anxiety disorders that are um, have got a stronger biological basis. 
But there are other elements that can contribute to anxiety, uh, such as traumatic life experiences, um, early childhood embarrassing or traumatic experiences uh, can lead into things like social anxiety. So there are many elements. There's def- there's certainly in the biological basis, we're looking at neurochemical imbalances, things such as dopamine and serotonin. Um, can and- you do much about that? Is there something that you can do that is your story that you can do to counter that? There's so much that you can do. So one of one of my key messages is really I want to help people to, to recognise that they can feel empowered in this space, to seek out the help that they need simply because there is an, a wealth of practical, uh, you know, effective evidence-based strategies that can turn things around within a matter of a couple of months, if not weeks. And given the biological basis to anxiety, we can look at things that facilitate stimulate dopamine so this is why the mind-body connection with anxiety is really helpful so looking at exercise as a stimulant of dopamine um, looking at making sure people get good sleep uh, factors in place Uh, they do things that give them a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment so values driven actions mindfulness is really powerful to embrace to bring yourself back to the present moment to embrace the present is is a really powerful strategy Um, so it's not just something that we turn to medication Uh, it's really something that yes there is absolutely a place for medication in certain situations but anxiety can be very readily turned around uh, looking at behavioral strategies approaching uh, standing up to worry as well as approaching avoided situations so we engage in things in a really holistic way that is uh, um, not dependent necessarily on medication but keeping in mind that there certainly is a time and place for medication at the the more extreme end of anxiety um, if necessary. So what are some of the most effective measures that all of us can take to maybe prevent our own anxiety becoming crippling? Because I think sometimes it just it hits you, you have a life event or something happens and it just the sense of overwhelm or panic attacks is something a lot of people experience. What are some ways in which we can maybe stop ourselves from getting to that point? Yeah, um, a question around prevention is is really a, a fantastic question because prevention is so powerful. It's engaging in resilience strategies. So a lot of the work that I do, whether it's in the corporate space or in the clinical space, is really around uh, resilience and a sense of empowerment. Oftentimes, the people who I'm working with are brilliant human beings. I talk a lot about this double-edged sword of anxiety. On the one hand, there's an, a, a, typically an analytical mind, a depth of thinking, a depth of feeling. So when I'm doing corporate coaching, it's not just people who experience anxiety. It's people who are propelled to be the best that they can be. So oftentimes it's it's perfectionistic kind of behaviours. Um, it's the imposter syndrome which says, uh, I'm a fraud, they're going to discover that I'm not good enough. And, so, and that's even when you're super successful. That could be CEOs and very public much. figures. 
Very much. So a lot of the work that I do in the corporate space is coaching with CEOs and C-suite executives, high functioning, high powered, highly successful individuals is the space that I work with in uh, in the business world. And so resilience strategies are exceptionally powerful. It is around awareness, around what are called safety behaviours. So they're the unhelpful strategies that we default to when we are feeling threatened. Um, And so it's this fight or flight. We might be aggressive. We might be passive. We might um, feel like we need to be perfectionistic. We might feel like we need to check and recheck our work a million times. So it's raising awareness around what resilience actually is. Resilience is about standing up to fear, standing up to worry, standing up to aggression, standing up to being passive, anything that's going down that pathway of when we're not engaging in values-driven actions. So it's this two-pronged approach. On the one hand, I look at um, strategies to not be bossed around by fear, to stretch our comfort zone, to embrace productivity and performance and um, assertiveness I look at emotional control strategies, so how to regulate emotions so we're not being captured by aggressive behaviours that might get in the way. We look at emotional intelligence. That's a key body of work that I do with people is around um, how to engage, how to negotiate, how to get collaboration, how to communicate effectively uh, in whatever field we happen to be in professionally and then on the other side of that it's how to embrace a values driven life how to tap into what gives us a sense of meaning a sense of purpose whether it's in business so looking at uh corporate values corporate um a a corporate purpose what drives us professionally in a business space or in a personal space. So it's this two-pronged approach to stand up to fear, to boss worry back and embrace our values and our sense of purpose and meaning in life. That's a fantastic summary. So do you have any special mentors or inspirational people that have guided you in this journey of life? If so, who are they and what have they taught you? So one of my key uh, inspirational people uh, was a man named Viktor Frankl. He wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. And the philosophy that I was actually just touching on is very much based on a core principle of what he talked about, uh, which was be uh, holding on to your identity, holding on to what gives you a sense of meaning and purpose in life, recognising that a situation might not be great. You know, it's not about... Um, it's not about positive thinking, it's about reality testing. Yes, positive thinking is is very helpful, but it's really about recognising that sometimes life is going to be tough. The situation is not always going to be in our control, but it's creating space to choose how we respond to that situation, to respond based on our heart space, what gives us meaning and purpose, what is what we want to have encapsulate our sense of identity, whether it's our business identity or our personal identity. 
and feeling empowered that we can recognize whatever adversity or challenge comes our way, we can have the power to choose what we want to have driving our response in that situation. So this uh, was based on Viktor Frankl's work. Um, so I'm and very influential, obviously, in your practice, perhaps, and how you think about life. Spot on. Um, very influential. Uh, he was actually in a concentration camp in World War Two. He was in Auschwitz, and uh, um, which uh, you know is, is the epitome of um, adverse of, of of a challenging life experience. And uh, he chose in that space to not lose his individuality, to hold on to what gave him a sense of meaning and purpose, powerful. to find resilience. Yes, very powerful. To wrap up, what would be your top three tips for anyone overcoming setbacks in the politics of anxiety? Three little things that they could be doing. So I would say to not suffer in silence is incredibly important to recognise that um, there's so around this not suffering in silence to recognize that there is so much that you can do to seek out the help that you need, whether it's in a corporate coaching capacity to embrace peak performance or whether it's in a clinical context if anxiety is getting in the way of living the life that you want to live. So tip number one, don't, uh, don't suffer in silence. Um, I also really want to deliver the message to recognize anxiety not as a weakness, but as very much a strength. Um, there's a, a, a person, Sarah Wilson, who I've done um, some work with, and she's just uh, she's got a fabulous book called First We Make the Beast Beautiful. I absolutely love the message that she's delivering with that book because it's talking about anxiety not as as a beast but recognizing it can be so much of uh what makes us beautiful you know that that as i said earlier that depth of thinking depth of feeling that passion and drive to um to make a difference on this planet is very much what capsulates a lot of the people who i work with who experience anxiety and my third um message is to recognize the power of prevention of resilient strategies, of seeking out things such as assertiveness, uh, communication skills, things that can help you feel strong and powerful. Um, prevention is incredible. Prevention is, is really powerful in that space. Well, it's been fantastic to chat to you today, Jody. If you want to contact Dr. Jody Lowinger, there will be some details on our show notes. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespoke comms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S.com.au and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.